0: Welcome to this episode of Woman to Woman podcast series. Our guest today is Liz Duffy. She is the president of International School Services since July 2015. Previously, 12 years she served as the 12th headmaster of the Lawrenceville School, a boarding school in New Jersey, founded in 1810. Prior to that, Miss Duffy worked in leadership capacities at three educational foundations. And she has served on the boards of numerous foundations, nonprofit organizations, and educational institutions. Miss Duffy received her undergrad degree in molecular biology from Princeton University and a graduate degree in business and education from Stanford University. Miss Duffy and her husband have two kids in college and live in New Jersey. Welcome Liz to our show. Thank you. Let's start at your childhood. How was your childhood and where was it? Was it East Coast? Um,
1: yes, I grew up in Massachusetts. Um, I was actually the sixth generation of my family to live in the same small town. And I lived there for 17 years until I went to college. Um, I have a twin brother. And then I have a sister who's just 16 months younger than us. So it was kind of like growing up as triplets. But now I have, I came to New Jersey for college and i have been here all together I think over 25 years now so now I'm a New Jerseyan.
0: Growing up what was your plan what did you want to be growing up?
1: Um, so I wanted to be at some point I decided I wanted to be a lawyer because my father was a lawyer um, he was a lawyer who mostly represented nonprofits. Um, he worked in Boston his biggest client was the Unitarian Universalist Church. Um, interestingly my mother um, she stayed home when she had all of us, but then she went back to work when she was, when we were maybe, I think my brother and I were in sixth grade. Um, but she was a computer programmer, um, actually starting in 1960. So she was one of the the early ones. Yeah. So it was fun to see that movie hidden figures. She didn't work there. She didn't work for NASA, but, um, but it was fun to be like, wow, mom, you really were a pioneer. <laughs> so, but that being said, and I was always really good at math and science. And I ended up, um, majoring actually in molecular biology. So it was kind of interesting. I still had the sense that I might want to be a lawyer, even though I have zero interest in the law. So, so anyhow, we all change our mind. What happened? How did you end up in
0: biology side of
1: things? Yeah. So like I said, I always actually did really well in math and science, but I never thought that's what I was interested in. Um, maybe with the exception of actually my senior year ep biology class we all had to do a um an independent project and i did it on sociobiology <laughs> the question i answered was is sociobiology um a feminist or not and i concluded that while it wasn't feminist it also wasn't sexist <laughs> so um <laughs> Anyhow, yeah, I don't remember much else about sociobiology, but I do remember that. Um, but I, so I went off to college knowing I was good in math and science, actually thinking at that point that I might want to major in math um, to, I took a math class that was incredibly theoretical um, and it was the first time I actually appreciated um, that people struggled with math because I never struggled with math up until that point. And um, it turns out I actually did really well, but I never really understood what I was doing. So, you know, I needed both. It wasn't just about doing well, I needed to actually understand what I was doing. So I was taking a bunch of science classes at the same time and really liked those. So when it came to deciding majors um, my sophomore year, I was deciding between chemistry, molecular biology, and history. Um, and even I even gave some thought to religion. Um, I decided to go the science route because it was easier to major in a science and take random other classes than vice versa because science classes are so cumulative. So, um, and then I decided (laughs) molecular biology, I'm sort of embarrassed to say, but because they had a brand new building and they did their um, Wednesday cookie hours (laughs) upstairs in this brand new building and had really good cookies where the chemistry department did theirs like down in the basement somewhere and they put like the sugar in beakers, which I thought was gross. So anyhow, so that's literally how I became a molecular biology major. So all thanks to cookies. All thanks to cookies. Yeah, let's be clear. Thanks to cookies and no thanks to sugar in chemistry beakers.
0: So you went on to do your MBA after that. What propelled that? And was that right after college or did you actually go into work, then decide you wanted to do an MBA, came back to it?
1: Yeah. So I, it wasn't right after college. So I graduated and the best piece of advice I got from someone when I was deciding what to do, I knew I didn't want to be a doctor, even though almost all the rest of the molecular biology majors were either going to become doctors or they were going to MD, PhD programs. Um, And I had written my senior thesis um, as a computer programmer, actually. So there we go. My mother (laughs) came in there because I didn't actually like lab work. I liked theoretical science, ironically, since I didn't like theoretical math. So I knew I didn't want to go that route. And someone said to me, well, what do you love doing? And I had spent a ton of time as an undergraduate um, in volunteering and working in the volunteer program. So when I was my second half of my senior year, they decided to hire someone full-time for the first time to run the volunteer program. Um, so they asked me if I would do it. So I stayed on. And for three years, I ran um, Princeton's uh, volunteer program. And in the middle of that, never, I never thought about business school, never crossed my mind. And in the middle of it, someone, I do not do not know who to this day, sent me a business school catalog. <laughs> And I started reading it and I was like, wow, this is like management. Like, I wish I knew this. I wish I do that. I mean, it wasn't all finance. Like I just thought it was all finance, um, but it wasn't. So I ended up applying and um, because it looked super interesting, it was a two-year degree. Um, I'm a big fan of MBA. If you don't know what you want to do, don't go to law school, go to business school. <laughs> um, it's only two years. There's no exam afterwards. <laughs> you can totally craft the program. However, you want. So so I ended up going to get an MBA and I got a general MBA, but I also got like a public management certificate. I got a master's in education. And this was all in two years for the same price as one degree. And like I said, there's no like, you know, boards at the end. Or so it was great. I'm a big fan. I use My whole career has been in the nonprofit sector and I have used what I learned in business school throughout it. So highly recommend that degree.
0: So most people, when they go to school in a certain area, you know, probability of them settling down around that area is much higher. So you went to Stanford for your MBA, which is in West Coast. Yep. How did you end up coming back? Was it family or you just didn't like West Coast?
1: Yeah, no, no, I really, what's there not to like about the West Coast? <laughs> no, I actually really like the West Coast. I ended up coming back to this area because actually between my first and second year of business school, I worked in New York City. Um, I tried investment banking. I was actually doing public finance. I was um, restructuring hospital debt <laughs> um, for uh, JP Morgan. Um, And it turned out that, I mean, I love the people I work with, people in public finance were super cool, um, but I hated the job. Um, So the, but I love New York City. So so basically what I got out of my summer job was knowledge that I didn't want to be an investment banker um, and knowledge that I wanted to live in New York City. So so I ended up coming back um, to work for um, the Mellon Foundation in New York City. Um, so I knew after that experience that summer that I really did want to stay in the nonprofit sector. Um, I thought foundations would be a cool place to work just because um, what I didn't, I love my job, I should say, running a volunteer program, my first job out. And I have often said it made me um, sort of um, unemployable in normal jobs because, you know, my very first job I had total responsibility, total freedom, got to work with really cool people, but both the community partners we work with and also the students. Um, So, you know, that's not your typical first job, but it was my first job. So, but so the one thing I didn't like about it though, is, you know, I spent a lot of time making like flyers for the open house that was coming up or like assigning cars to people. So, so I wanted something that was a little more academic than that. Um, someone recommended, I can't remember who, foundations. And they said, the way to get a job in a foundation is to call anybody you know who has any connections to foundations. Well, it turned out that the former president of Princeton was head of the Mellon Foundation. He was the only person I knew who worked at a foundation. So I sent him, you know, uh, actually I probably sent him probably a letter, maybe an email, I don't even think we had e- We were just starting to, when I was in business school, have emails, believe it or not. Um, so, <laughs> So I can't remember exactly how I contacted him. Maybe I called him. I don't know. In any case, he sort of got on the phone with me. He talked to me. And at the end, he said, well, what do you think about coming to talk to us? <laughs> and I said, sure. So next thing I knew, I had a job in New York City for a foundation. So, and I did that for... Um, five years, New York City is still my favorite place on earth. And I've now travel, given my current job all over the world. I'd like lots of other places too, but New York City just has a particular energy to it. I felt like it's the only place I've ever lived where I was totally in tune with like the pace of the place. Like I was never bored in New York City. There's always something to do. So I worked there for just about five years and I work with universities across the country mostly. Um, And the nice thing, working at a foundation in the nonprofit sector is kind of like being a consultant in the for-profit sector. Like you go from one project to the next project to the next project. The only difference is we brought money with us, but but in any case, but your job was to go and work with a school coming up with a proposal, then to fund them and then to work, go to the next um, place. And it was super fun because I got to work with basically presidents and provosts and deans of faculty across the country what I didn't like about it or what eventually made me leave there. Cause people are like, why'd you ever leave there? Um, what eventually made me leave there is just like a consultant. You don't actually get to do the work. Like you come up, you work with people to come up with a plan and you help them craft a plan. And then your job is to get out of the way and leave. And so after a while I was like, okay, but I actually want to like do the project. So I um, moved from there to the Woodrow Wilson Foundation, which was um, now has a new name, and I can't remember its new name, but they changed their name. But in any case, they um, are based out of Princeton and they work with K all the way through graduate school <laughs> levels of education, and it's an operating foundation. So, so unlike Mellon, which gave away money and didn't get to run the programs, we actually ran programs and actually applied to people like Mellon <laughs> to get money to run the programs. So I did that for three years and actually super happy there and then I got a call from a headhunter about coming out to Chicago to um, run a foundation there and honestly it seemed to be out of the blue and the only reason I went to that was because I had a roommate from college who lived in Chicago so it was a free trip out to see her so and that's that's not a joke (laughs) it's totally true so so out I went and I got a free trip and a job Um, so I did that for four years. And that foundation was also an operating foundation. It worked with mid sized urban school districts on school reform. So I actually had, well, I was based out of um, just a suburb just west of Chicago. It was a family foundation. I had staff in like Chula Vista, California and Grand Rapids, Michigan and Springfield, Illinois. So again, small, mid sized urban school districts, and we did um, district reform. Also super fun job. I had my two kids um, when we were there, which was quite an interesting experience. I didn't even sort of think twice about it. So here I was this young woman that no one knew coming from the East coast to run this foundation. And I think three months later, I got pregnant. Um, When I had my daughter, who's my older one, she was like the first person born, first, first woman who had had a child and even one of the few men who had had a child in like 10 years or something like that, maybe even more at the foundation. And everybody was so enthusiastic and so excited. And I only realized afterwards, so my son is 20 months younger than my daughter. And there were 10 kids at the foundation between the two of them. (laughs) So it was kind of like, okay, if the boss is having a kid, guess I can have one too. You started something. It opened this floodgate. I mean, it (laughs) we open the floodgate. So they were excited when Teddy came along, but not as excited as they were when Lucy came along. So I did that and I really love that. Um, What got me to leave there um, again was kind of serendipity. And maybe this is take one message from this. It's that you can only plan your career (laughs) so much. Like things happen that you just have no idea they're going to happen. So my husband and I had decided that. Given we had two kids, given that our whole families were either back in this area, or I had I have a sister in Seattle, but everybody else was between Princeton and Massachusetts. And so we were finding that we were spending every minute of our vacation visiting family, which was lovely, but it meant we couldn't do anything else. And it also meant we had no family close by. To help or you know so we had to take vacation to see anybody um uh, we had just been having this conversation that well it would be really fun to you know my next job maybe we should go back um east and my husband at that point was staying home full-time so so it really was my where my job was taking us is where we were going. Um, we just had that conversation. And I also felt like even though um, the Ball Foundation, which is the foundation I ran, was an operating foundation. So again, we partnered with urban, mid sized urban school districts. Um, it's still the case that because I was the head of it and located in Illinois, I didn't really do the work. Like I would just go visit <laughs> the sites and hear what people were doing. And I'm someone who I just, I like doing the work. so. I sort of also decided that I probably wanted to be at a university or in a school as opposed to one step removed from it. And then here's the serendipity part. My husband um, had gone to Lawrenceville, the boarding school in New Jersey, um, and he got as an alum, he got a little letter saying, you know, the head was stepping down. They were looking for candidates. If you had an idea, you know, please put their name in and And I can still remember the the conversation. We were in a car, I think, driving up and down the East Coast, seeing family. And we were having the conversation with like, you know, I could see the side of his head because he was driving. It's one of those kind of conversations where you're not looking at each other. Um, And he said to me, you know, the head of Lawrenceville is stepping down. I'm like, great. Who's the head of Lawrenceville? (laughs) Like, why do I care that the head of Lawrenceville is stepping down? I mean, I knew he'd gone there, so I cared that way. But he said, and he told me whoever it was. um, And then he said, um, you know, so would you think of applying for that job? And I was like, what? I mean, I never, lots of different kinds of education, never private education. I hadn't gone to a boarding school. I hadn't gone to a private school. I hadn't taught, you know, I could just make the list really long. I was a female. The school had been co-ed, I mean, had been all male until 15 years before. I was relatively young for that kind of position. But I was like, it was, I sort of, you know, you think about an idea, you get an idea in your head and then it won't go away. So I sort of—that's what happened. Got an idea in my head; it wouldn't go away. Um, so I was like, "Well, what do I have to lose?" So I applied, and at the time, Survivor was really popular. So it was felt like Survivor—like they kept voting people off the island and I kept being left on the island. So, so yeah. So I became um, the twelfth headmaster, <laughs> the headmaster at the time is what it was called, so I'm head um, of Lawrenceville, and I did that for. 12 years um, which was a wow. super fun job my kids were not quite one and two and a half when we started there they grew up there left just at the point my daughter was going to enter lawrenceville which she thought was the greatest thing ever <laughs> But her mother was not going to be head of the high school where she was going <laughs> to so but but again not anything that i certainly did not set out to be the head of a boarding school as you can tell by everything I did before because that path that I just described well it turned out to be amazing preparation for being <laughs> head of a boarding school uh, it's you probably won't find another person who has been head of a boarding school who had that path to becoming a head of a boarding school so but again I just say that to say I think you find that with a lot of people a lot of people think that whatever path they took was unique and it probably was unique So, so yes, you can learn from people and what they did to get places, but mostly my guess is what they did is work hard (laughs) at what they were doing, have a sense of what was important to them and like, take risks, like, you know, jump at opportunities. And since this is a women um, to women conversation, I will say the one thing that I find that women do more than men is they don't take risks. So oftentimes women feel like they have to, if they see a job description, they have to have done, you know, 90, if not 110% of the things that are on that list before they try something. But, you know, as I say to everybody, like no one's been ahead of a school until they've been ahead of a school. And if I had taken that approach, I never would have even thought of applying for (laughs) that job. And I never would have had an opportunity to do that. And I often also tell people I do a lot of um, sessions for women leaders, and I was like, the only way you can guarantee you won't get a job is not to apply for it. <laughs> don't don't count yourself out. Like, don't be the person who's saying no to your getting that job. <laughs> Let them say no, you're not ready. Or, um, and I'm definitely a poster child for that because then my final job just to quickly get to the end of my career. Um, So I left Lawrenceville after 12 years to become president of International School Services, which is a um, nonprofit's been around since 1955, works with hundreds of international schools around the world, and again, you know, never lived overseas, worked overseas. I traveled a lot. I like traveling, never worked at an international school, but I find, so, so that is a pattern in my career. I always go to something related to, but not exactly what I've been doing. And I find that that actually allows me to ask questions that people in the field can ask because they it can't, it's like, you can't see what you can't see. So yeah you you bring in a
0: fresh perspective.
1: Right, right, right. And I know enough to like ask good questions but not so much that I don't sort of say like why are we doing that? So anyhow, that was a very long answer sorry to your short question.
0: No, no, this this was amazing. Like <laughs> you you choose your major based on the cookies being served and the location of the classes. Yeah, yeah. You choose a job based on a free flight ticket to Chicago, but it yeah. it talks about a life well lived, right? in the spur of the moment, you took decisions, you stuck to them, and you had fun, and you came out of it to the next position that made sense to you.
1: Right, right, right. And that's because I don't, I've never had people always say, like, what was your career plan? I was like, okay, I honestly never had a career plan. I mean, I never had a career plan. Again, my career plan was to like, you know, do what I love and work hard at what I do. And if I didn't like something, get out of it. So, so again, that's what, so I did after that summer, for example, that I worked in wall street. I mean, I got an offer to go back to wall street and a bunch of people were like, well, how can you say no? And I was like, because I don't like it. Life is too short and you spend a lot of time at work. If you're fortunate enough to be able to be choosy and if you're fortunate enough to be able to you know, go in different directions, find the thing that, that feels good to you and where you want to spend time doing it. There's a framework that I often um, teach people, which is this notion that um, we have core strengths and core weaknesses. And you think of strengths and weaknesses often as strength is something that you're good at and weakness is something you're bad at. But what this framework does, it's a guy named, I think Marcus Buckingham, I think is his name. Um, He talks about a strength. the core strength is something that strengthens you, (laughs) that energizes you. And a core weakness is something that drains you. And you might be good at a core weakness, like i i'm good at details but i hate details <laughs> like it just like it just drains me like yes i can do them i can review contracts but i can't stand reviewing contracts so so it's important to to sort of find something that sort of it speaks to your optimizes your core weakness i mean your core strengths and allows you to minimize or to delegate or to not spend so much time on your core weaknesses because You know, oftentimes people say like, well, how you get better is you focus on your weaknesses. And by this framework, no, all that does is drain you. It makes you more miserable. (laughs) Like, like focus on your strengths, leverage your strengths, go with your strengths. Something sort of I've learned along the way. So that's been my approach to my career and continues to be like, you know, I, I love what I'm doing now. I'll probably stay doing it for a while. Will I retire into this job? I don't know. That would be the longest I'd ever spent in a job if I do that. And my husband's actually convinced I'll never retire. So he might be right, <laughs> which probably means I have at least another career after this. But I can't tell you what it will be. But I can tell you it will be something that, you know, I like going to work. I want to spend time doing it.
0: That's, that's wonderful. You mentioned, you know, you did this um, internship in New York, in Wall Street, and you realized that that wasn't something you want to do. A lot of times um, I feel we think of something and then we fantasize about how great it's going to be. A couple of our guests had also said that, you know, do the job, even if it's for free, get an internship. So you realize what you're getting into before you jump in, you know, with both your feet. Do you believe in that? Um,
1: I definitely do. And I, um, I I think there's a bunch of different ways you can do it. So when you're in school, there's no question, make use of summer opportunities, whether it's paid or not to, to um, try different things. And even if you hate it, well, that's a really good use of 10 weeks because better to spend 10 weeks to find out you hate it than to like be trapped into something. Cause you feel like you have to stay for a couple of years. I would definitely say, say take advantage of um, summer trips. The other thing is um, your life is, is, even though work takes a lot of time, your life is much bigger than that. So I I told you, I started running the volunteer program at Princeton, because that's what I did as a volunteer. And that's what I found myself being drawn to. And that's what I love to do. Well, until I became, you know, the full-time administrator there, I did a lot of work for the student volunteers council. I wasn't paid a cent for doing it, but I really liked doing it. So think about what you like doing outside, like if I'd only thought like I'm a molecular biology major, I have to do something in molecular biology, I wouldn't have um, been running a volunteer program. So think about outside, like I sit on a bunch of boards. I mean, frankly, I've always sat on a bunch of boards and sitting on those boards was probably one of the things that got me my job at Lawrenceville, both because I could sort of say I had board experience, And because at the time I was sitting on Princeton's board and there was a bunch of people on Princeton's board who knew people at Lawrenceville who could say she's legitimate, like (laughs) like she's someone you want to talk to. So, so again, it think outside of just what you spend your time doing as a way to explore, like if you're in a job now and you don't think you want to be in it forever, it doesn't mean you have to quit that (laughs) and go you know, take another job or do an internship for free or whatever, think about, okay, so what might you want to do and how can you explore that in a volunteer basis while you're doing what you're doing full-time? So yeah, absolutely. A big fan.
0: So growing up, any key influences in your life?
1: Yeah. I mean, a lot of them. So, so my mother was definitely one, I think I told you she was an early computer programmer and um, more than that. So, so again, I I actually recently took a couple of years ago, I took the um, implicit bias test that you can do one based on, you know, gender based on ethnicity, based on all sorts of things. So the one on gender, the test was about how strongly you associated men with math and science and females with history and humanities. Well, I actually ended up in the like 3% of the population that actually had a strong association between women in math and science and men in humanities, which is pretty funny. And I realized that was all about how I grew up. It wasn't actually about the fact that I was elected a biology major. It was all about I kept having when I was answering the questions, my mother and mine. So so she was, so she was both inspirational that way and she was also inspirational in that. Um, in a different generation she would have been a ceo. <laughs> like there's no question like she was head of every volunteer organization in the community. she organized a bus boycott when we were like, you know, I don't know, in second grade because there were too many people on the bus and like so so she was a big um, influence. Um, my father was a big influence for a different reason. so like I said, he spent his, he was a lawyer in Boston, but his most of his career was working with nonprofits. Um, so combination of my mother volunteering, and my father was a big. He was a town selectman, plus he volunteered a ton, and those were his clients. He also, we got, my sister and I got a strong message early on that girls were as good as boys um, when my father for the Unitarian Universalist Church once a year, he'd go on a big one week uh, trip for them, you know, where, where they had their annual convention. And I can remember the year they went to DC and he always brings us back a present, which was a big thing. So he brought us back that year, t-shirts. And my sisters and mine said, a girl's place is in the house, dot, dot, dot. And then on the back it said, and in the Senate. <laughs> so here we were in like second and third grade showing at the gym. <laughs> those t-shirts on so that was a big influence and then I think you know I think I went into education because I love school my teachers you know there were tons of teachers who um, I just thought were amazing people and were clearly happy doing what they were doing so I think those were other influences
0: did you have any role models growing up or any mentors
1: yeah you know I had a lot I mean again like my parents were role models in their own way but I think um my biggest role models probably came after high school and in college. So I was really fortunate in college to mostly through the volunteer work I did to get to know a number of actually administrators more so than faculty. I mean, I got to know faculty through like my independent work and that kind of stuff, but, um, I didn't pursue an academic career. So clearly they were only role models and so much where I did, um, end up ultimately going into school administration and. And still to this day, I'm in touch with probably three or four people who were mentors of mine when I was at uh, Princeton as an undergraduate. And let's just say it's been a lot of years (laughs) since I was at Princeton. So what I appreciated about them was just that they they were so invested in students' growth and development, even though they weren't classroom teachers. Like they cared about you as a whole person and they tended to be really you know engaged and interested in what was happening in the world and helping us all navigate that even though we were in this little bubble and then you know definitely i mean i think i told you i called up the man who had been the president of princeton and asked him about a job and he became a mentor actually through a volunteer thing too so we so one of the things i brought the special olympics to princeton when i was a student and again okay another accident serendipity like i got I got put on this board, the Student Volunteers Council board. It was a student board. There was no adult um, involved at the time. There was an advisor who was one of my mentors who was head of the um, chapel, still is my mentor to this day. Actually, she said to me, she was also my first boss. And she said to me on my like second day of work, like, someday I'm going to be working for you. And I was like, okay, <laughs> whatever you say. And sure enough, when we got to Lawrenceville, she became a school chaplain at Lawrenceville. So she did. <laughs> and so and she's still a... She's still a good friend and definitely a mentor. So I got put in this board um, that she was the advisor to. And my job was to increase the number of volunteers at Princeton. So I don't know, somewhere i had been an athlete. So somewhere along the way, I'd heard about the Special Olympics. I was like, oh, we should do the Special Olympics. So I looked into it and I got sent from the New Jersey Special Olympics this packet, which turns out it was the packet for how you run the state event in the summer. Well, I didn't find this out until years later. But so I was like, oh, great, we'll put the games on here. And I put a games on that had everything from like the opening ceremony, like you know, all 500 athletes got buddies. There were all these events. It was down at the football stadium. And Bill Bowen, who was president of Princeton at the time, came to do, I invited him to come and give the opening <laughs> Remarks, why not? He's the president of the university. So he came and from that moment on, he followed me (laughs) through Princeton. And so again, so I so I got to know him in a way that like I never would have gotten to know him. Um, so much so. So I'd walk across campus and he'd see me be like, Hi Liz, how are you? And people would be like, How do you know him? (laughs) I'm like, Well, actually, I sat next to him. (laughs) But but he was that kind of person. And he I worked for him for five years at the Mellon Foundation. He was a recommender to me when I went to Lawrenceville. He um yeah, he was a mentor. He he unfortunately died a couple of years ago, but he was a mentor pretty much up until like the month he died. Yeah. So you kind of, I think, again, if you sort of invest yourself in what you're doing, people notice that and people want to help people who are enthusiastic about what they do.
0: But what an achievement bringing Special Olympics. Like I, I see even now they do it and it's incredible. I'm like, how do they even think about this? And, and it is such such an amazing event put together. So I didn't realize you were the one who brought it in. So congratulations, that's awesome. Every time I see it through the years, I've always thought who was, who would have been like that first
1: person who about thought about this? So, well, Excellent. you did it. Excellent, We know what I loved about it. What I loved about it, we would do it in May at the time and it was in the middle of reading period, which can be a kind of a bleak time. And it was right at the very end of it. and. There were all these, I mean, again, we probably had 750 student volunteers and like, you know, 500 athletes and, you know, a thousand friends and family that were there with them, if not 2000 and everybody, it's impossible to be around a special Olympic athlete and not smile. I mean, they are just so loving, enthusiastic and whatever. And so like, there were all these Princeton students in the middle of exams like laughing and smiling and cheering. And like, it was just such a, yeah, it just gives me bumps even now to sort of think about. So, and, and there were, frankly, there were probably 50 of us who work really hard to like bring that to campus every year. So, yeah, but again, I, you know, I don't even know how I found out. It's not like I'd been involved with Special Olympics up until then, but I had been a athlete, and then I was a coach at a deaf school in Trenton. So, like, sports were important. I mean, I knew sports were important in general, and they were important to me and something I knew about. And I needed to get more volunteers. So,
0: <laughs> there we go. No, great. Any values that you've always abided by? Clearly, going with the flow is one of them.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Any others? um big into integrity like i think you have to you have to be true to yourself but you also have to be true to your word so that's one um big into um sort of empathy in the sense of like even though i grew up it's funny cuz growing up in this small town that i knew i mean i literally knew everybody and my grand, we, would go, we would go to my grandparents house sometimes and they'd say oh who are you playing with and they often be like, oh, you know, that's your like second cousin once removed. (laughs) and They get really upset when they couldn't figure out the connection. Um, So, but I think sometimes, and it was a very, so it was a very um, homogenous place. I mean, it was, you know, pretty much all white, all Catholic. The fact that I'm I'm half Irish and half Italian, that was diversity in my hometown, you know, seriously. (laughs) Most people were Irish Catholic as opposed to Irish, Italian Catholic. Um, the um, but I think there's something about growing up in such a tight community that it made me super interested, even from a really early age like, even from what I read, and it's true to this day in like other cultures and other places and like getting to know other people who weren't just like me. Cause I, you know, I kind of knew what people just like me were like, cause I was that, uh, you know, empathy, diversity, inclusion. Like I really do believe you want what makes things stronger is having people from different perspectives, different backgrounds. Yeah. And, and again, I think ironically coming from a place that had none of that could have been super insular. <laughs> it actually ended up instead being sort of a strong foundation for being for me being exactly the opposite of that. So I really do. um, There's a quote by Marian Wright Edelman. I can never remember quotes, but this one has always stuck with me, which is um, service is the rent that you pay for living. And I fundamentally believe in that. Like what difference are you going to make in the world? (laughs) Like we all, you know, have certain gifts and talents and opportunities, like make the most of it. Like, I mean, uh, at least I don't necessarily believe it'd be nice, maybe we're reincarnated, but i'm I'm not uh, I'm at least not certain enough of that. I'm just I'm only counting on having one chance. <laughs> so so make the most of my one chance. and if I get a second chance, great. So women who are listening today, yeah, what advice would you give
0: them to succeed in life, to become something, impactful, like you have made out of your life, what should they be doing?
1: Um, Listen to yourself. And so maybe this goes back to integrity too. Like really don't listen to other people. (laughs) Listen to yourself. I mean, listen to other people in terms of advice and that kind of stuff, but in terms of what you become, um, listen to yourself. Like there were a lot of people who thought when I said I wanted to go into education after Princeton, they were like, really? That's what you want to do? But you could do, you know, I don't know, name whatever else you could do. And I was like, yeah, but how do I want to spend my life? <laughs> it's in education. So so listen to yourself. Um, two, another um, piece of advice is, you know, the whole career family thing. It's a challenge um, and there's no one right way to do it. And maybe the best piece of advice I ever got from that is think about, don't think of um, work-life balance at a point in time. Think of work like balance over time. So there were going to be, so one of the reasons I took the job, I took, I, I could have gone from Lawrenceville if I wanted to and run another school, but like that is a particular boarding school is literally a 24 seven job. And I had been in that kind of job since literally before my kids were born um, all the way up until they got to high school. And I realized that I, I still wanted a super interesting job and I did want a job um, that, I got to travel overseas, but I also wanted one that like I could go to their soccer games and lacrosse games and basketball (laughs) games. And that I wasn't like, that was going to be my last opportunity before they went off to college to actually not be working 24 seven or not have a job that was 24 seven, um, And I mean, I have to say, I kind of actually really like it. They're now in college and I'm still totally enjoying this job. So, So, but my only point of that was, you know, so at that point, I chose not to take some opportunities that I had to go run something, you know, super intense and run something that was a little less intense, but it's been awesome. Um w- one thing I would in terms of people today, I do think we live in a small world. I mean, COVID not with well, COVID's proved that we live in a totally interconnected small world. And maybe the one regret I have, I'm sure I have more than one regret, one regret, one regret I have, not the only one regret I have, is um not living overseas at some point. <laughs> and I still might, I still might. I'm not, I'm not giving up on that, but. But there is something about actually being like, I'm pretty, I'm very comfortable actually traveling and going around. But the reality is is I've never actually lived overseas. <laughs> um, and I think in this world today, I would highly recommend that you to have an opportunity, even if it could be a summer opportunity. <laughs> um, but it could also be, you know, a job opportunity for a few years. Like, like my kids are much more global than i ever was and i'm happy they're much more global even though i'm now in a global job
0: thank you so much for all your experiences and all the great advice really appreciate it it was great having you on our podcast today
1: thank you thank you it was a pleasure